Hi, welcome to the Minority Money Podcast with our dad, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, the best dad in the whole world. You know why we think he's the best? Because he teaches us stuff, good stuff about life and money. We know you will love him as much as we do. So let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a financial planning an investment firm located in California's Central Valley. Today, we are going to be joined by the one Dr. Megan Lertz. She is the current president of the Financial Therapy Association, a professor of practice at Kansas State University in the Advanced Financial Planning Track, and a senior research associate at Kitsis.com, a popular financial planning blog dedicated to heightening and educating the financial planning profession. Her research has been featured in the Journal of Financial Planning, the Journal of Consumer Affairs, the Journal of Financial Planning and Counseling. She's also co-authored chapters in the CFP Board's Client Psychology on Risk Literacy and Money Scripts. So she's coming to us with a vast range of experience in dealing with people, their money, and the psychology behind that. So Megan, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Megan and I met at the XYPN Live conference, and I walked up to her table because she had a financial therapy association, and I was like, what is financial therapy? And so we actually started to talk, and I was like, we got to have you on the podcast. I mean, I think, I don't know, it was like maybe two minutes into the conversation I said that to you. I got to have you on. Right. So thanks for coming. And if you wouldn't mind giving the listeners a little background of yourself and kind of how you got to where you are now. Yeah. Uh, I started out in the industry actually working for my mother's company. She was chief, let's see, chief technology officer or something like this for the financial planning software, total rebalance expert that was later sold to Morningstar. So she needed help with her technology firm. And she said, why don't you come work for me? And I said, sure. So I started working for her and just the opportunity to work with financial advisors on a day-to-day basis. I enjoyed working with them. I just thought they were wonderful people. And one day I was at a conference. I'm pretty sure it was the TD Ameritrade conference. And I got to talking to some students from Texas Tech University. They were interested in the software in order to run some simulations for different PhD things that they were working on in terms of rebalancing. And so we were talking about that. And I ended up talking to a gentleman named Dr. Barry Mulholland. He said, you know, you should come to Texas Tech. You know, we need more people like you that are interested in this sort of psychology background, you know, but also the financial planning background. Your experience is just sort of interesting because at the time I had been working on my master's in industrial organizational psychology and really found that in working with financial advisors, yes, we'd be talking about rebalancing or their firm. But we would oftentimes kind of get into just talking about either their lives or their clients' lives and just sort of the emotion around money. And so I explained to him that I was military spouse and couldn't move to Lubbock because there's no water. (laughs) Only one reason why you can't move to Lubbock, I guess. And then he goes, well, if you don't move to Lubbock, then you definitely need to call the people at Kansas State University because their program is online and talk with Dr. Sonia Luter. So that is exactly what I did. I, after talking with her, I immediately signed up for the master's certificate in financial therapy, took one class, loved it so much, decided, yep, definitely getting my PhD and went on to do that at Kansas State. And then just in being involved in financial therapy, 
has sort of led me to where I am today. So thanks, mom. <laughs> awesome. I, I love it. So it's, like it's it's always like you get started and then you just continue to find or uncover more things that you love about the profession and dig deeper. And now being the president of the Financial Therapy Association is 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 awesome. And and I know the the listeners are going to really appreciate this because when I talk to people, you know, therapy, like they think therapy and therapy always has, you know, people, when I think of therapy, the first thing that comes to my mind is marriage therapy or marriage counseling or, you know, relationship things, but never the financial therapy. And so when we're, when we're sitting here and I, I know my, you know, listeners are like, so what is financial therapy? And, and I, I just, if you could just explain to us, what is what is that? What, what is financial therapy? Yeah. So financial therapy is, it is about money, but it's more so about sort of the relational and emotional aspects that come with money. So money for different people can represent, money can say, I'm responsible. Money can say, I'm irresponsible. Money can say, I love you. Money can say, I hate you. Money can say so many things that are emotional and that are relational. And financial therapy is interested in diving into those areas. And in terms of financial planners, you know, there are days when you're working with clients where you can't get them to come to an agreement or you're working with them and they are just not moving forward on the suggestions that you've come together to implement to sort of get their financial plan on track. They're just dragging their feet. Sometimes those things, the reason that they're dragging their feet or the reason that they're just not able to come together or the reason that they're fighting in front of you or the reason that they're fighting with you is because of some of those deeper emotional and relational things that although we're calling it money, money represents so much more. So that, that's really the financial therapy. It's kind of the intersection between we have people doing financial planning, but they're running into these emotional issues. And even on the marriage and family therapy or therapeutic side, you know, we have therapy persons where perhaps it is a couple of spouses, you know, come in together and they're fighting, perhaps they're thinking about divorce or something like this. And it comes down to the fact that there's some money troubles, you know, going on in the house and it's causing stress. There currently is not curriculum for marriage and family therapists as just one example to be able to talk to their clients about money not even giving them investment advice, but just understanding a profit and loss statement, just understanding what a credit score is and how to read it. These are not things that therapists are taught. And in the same, in the same leg, you know, there are plenty of communication type things that financial advisors are not necessarily taught. And financial therapy is sort of a way to bring this area that both, both current fields, you know, to have now having this new field of financial therapy and moving that forward. I, I think what I'm hearing you say is like there, there's never the intersection between finance and therapy, obviously, is the is the financial therapy association. But I think when people come into a relationship, you have all kinds of I, I see it written here, money scripts. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you come from the sum total of the, you know, the events that you've had in the relationship you've had with money that you may have learned from your parents. And then you bring that into, so you bring it into the relationship and, you know, whereas you, you know, you always like just to kind of generalize it, but you have one person that may be a spender, you have one person that may be a saver, you know, that fundamentally makes up this person. And it's because of 
some of the things that they may have had happen in their life in the past. Let's take, for instance, someone that was, you know, someone that had a, a rough childhood and now they just want to be able to save as much money as they can so they don't have to go back through the things that they went through in their childhood. Right. And then you have someone else that's, you know, they've always, you know, they, they had the same approach. They didn't have much as a child. So everything they get, they want to make sure that they can buy and provide in their mind for their children. And now you put these two people in the same house and they get married and now they're raising children. And then those money scripts or those money past come up and there's really no way to talk about them because you go see the financial planner and they just make sure that you're ready for retirement. And right. You go see the therapist and they just make sure that you guys aren't, you know, that the marriage is working. And then there's never a blend of those two things together because they, you know, I think, not often, not okay. often. It's two very sort of different skill sets and, mm -hmm. you know, two sort of professionals with slightly different goals. And so financial therapy yeah, can very much be that place where the intersection happens and certainly can work with people in all different ways. I mean, I, I always tell the story of myself, for example, that like, so my husband is only child. Uh, he grew up in a very comfortable household. There was never sort of where they talked about money a lot. And then there's my household where I also grew up in a very comfortable household. But in my household, I was always told as a female from my mother, you know, you need to be able to take care of yourself financially, which certainly doesn't sound like a negative thing to tell a young woman. That's I think that's a good thing. We should be able to take care of ourselves financially. But it was always said with sort of this undertone that had a little bit of like warning to it. It wasn't like this happy go lucky, like, yay, women in power kind of like a warning, you know, you need to be able to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't married to my husband yet. We were engaged and we were buying a home together. And my husband comes home one day and he says, you know, I think we should combine bank accounts. We're, we're having this home together. And I could feel from my nose down to my toes. My entire face was red. I was angry. I didn't know where this anger was coming from. And I told my husband, I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you. But I, if you think you're going to control me with your money, you know, you're crazy. I don't want to share a bank account with you. I don't want to do it now. And I don't want to do it ever. You know, we're coming down to this. We're going to buy this home together. I'll just transfer you the money from my own bank account. I don't want to know what you make. And you definitely don't need to know what I make. And he goes, oh, well, okay. Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess that's fine. And, you know, he was totally not expecting this immense emotional reaction. And I wasn't even quite sure where this immense emotional reaction was coming from. So flash forward, maybe even like three months later, I'm in my financial therapy courses at the time with Dr. Christy Archuleta, and we were taking a relationships and therapy class. And I had to like learn about my money history, which my great grandmother was married to the town drunk. He did awful things like at one point sold the dog to buy booze. You know, so if there was money in the house, you had to hide the money. Flash forward to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. My grandfather left her with her five children and pretty much took everything. Oh. She had to sell what were her, you know, quote unquote, priceless possessions to kind of put food on the table. So again, like the man causing these sort of emotional traumas. And then now flash forward to my mom and my mom, obviously when she owned a company, so she is very comfortable, very independent. My parents did separate or divorce, but it wasn't over necessarily financial things, but it was always this belief. Like my mom went to work every day. You know, she knew, I knew that she saved. We talked about money and those things in the household, but I also knew that my mom was financially independent. 
of her husband. And so now flash forward to me, I have always been told this like undercurrent of fear when it comes to being able to take care of yourself. And my husband definitely didn't have those same money stories or anything like that in his life. And so even though I'm able to talk about it now and I sort of understand like where that fear or where that stress was coming from at the time, the emotional reaction that I had to my husband simply saying, hey, since we're buying a house together, we should probably combine bank accounts. You know, I didn't have the wherewithal when that was conversation was happening to understand why that would be such an emotional trigger. And so I think a lot of times there's stuff with money, good stuff, bad stuff, that is an emotional trigger. And if we don't know what those emotional triggers are, sometimes they can be disruptive Mm -hmm. to our relationships. Sometimes they can be disruptive for just us as individuals. And, you know, through my own financial therapy work, I've been able to learn these things about myself. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great for financial planners to do, but I also think it's awesome for consumers of financial services Mm -hmm. to also do, you know, to think about some of these things and to share, you know, together what they're, especially if they're a couple, you know, what their lives were like growing up as kids Mm -hmm. and the things that they learned in terms of, you know, do you not talk about money? Do you talk about money all the time? Um, how do you express with money? How do you not express with money? When you buy stuff, my husband loves the new things. His Apple phone comes out, he's going to have it. I am not like this. <laughs> so I think it's just important to know that money is an emotional trigger, whether we like it or not. And to not know what your emotional triggers are can sometimes make financial planning more difficult, can make savings more difficult, mm-hmm. can make your life with your spouse more difficult. And so financial, again, financial therapy is a place where these things can be talked about. These things can be discussed. These things can be reviewed. And there's, it's like a safe space for that. And I think that sometimes people don't even know what they don't know, right? Like you, no, you just explained no, no. Uh, a beautiful story. Uh, thank you for sharing your personal story, by the way. You just explained it in such a way that it makes perfect sense. If you're going to meet with a financial advisor, they're not going to ask you any of those questions. Right. They're not going to ask you anything about that. When I go in and I'm meeting with someone, all I'm thinking about is, okay, so you need to put away. And this is what I was talking to someone about uh, just, just two days ago. We were talking about if you're not spending time with the people and you're just worrying about the numbers, like I was talking to an advisor about this just on Monday. And she was like, you know, people aren't listening. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, what about the emotional part of it that why aren't they like, there's a why to that, you know, people aren't just people. I don't think people just want to be in this rat race of finance and not get things figured out. But sometimes I don't think that they know what they don't know. And they have these emotions that come up and they don't know how to deal with them. And so they just kind of, you know, do whatever it is that they normally do. So how, how can financial challenges affect people emotionally? I think that they can affect people in a lot of ways, you know, because again, like money says I've done well. And at the same time, money can also say I have not done well. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a lot of shame associated with, well, honestly, there can be shame associated with both. Mm -hmm. You know, people can have lots of money and perhaps they feel bad about that or they're not, they're not quite sure how they feel about their wealth because they know that other people don't have it. So it makes them feel awkward, but at the same time, perhaps they've worked very hard to get there. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lot of 
emotional yo-yoing when it comes to money and what, what it means to us and how it works in our lives. And, and I think that all of financial life is challenging. I mean, I'm a financial researcher. I work in this field every day. I talk about money all the time. I talk about money and emotions all the time. And yet when I see my money come out of my bank account or my 401k, I still think to myself, is that, is that really, am I really going to be able to retire one day? Is that actually going to work? You know, so I think that there's just a lot of fear and a lot of stress and a lot of like, mm, this seems very black boxy over here. I'm not quite sure what's, mm-hmm. what's actually happening over there. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot that we can control. You know, we can't control the market. We're just told to put away our 10% or whatever it is. And, and that's scary. That's scary for a lot of people. And we don't talk about how scary it is. You know, we just simply say people aren't saving. And we talk about that a lot. And I think that that, I think that it's important to obviously know that people aren't saving, but we don't necessarily always know why. Like, certainly we think it could be related to future discounting. You know, people aren't good at thinking about the future and planning for the future. That could be part of it. But I also think that there's a lot of emotion, a lot of fear, a lot of not knowing. And so just anytime you're making a financial change, whether you're trying to save more money or you're wanting to put more into your 401k or you want to open up a Roth or you have to have a 529 plan because you have a four-month-old, these, all of these things are scary and different and new. And so I think that just about anytime we do something financial, in many ways, it is a financial challenge because it's a new and different thing that we haven't done before. Absolutely. And when you Mm -hmm. think about it, the money scripts, like more money, more problems, right? That, that's, a, that's a classic money script where it's like, okay, now I'm making more money. Now I have to have all these problems. Or a lot of times I have clients come in and the first thing they do is they beat themselves up because I haven't saved enough because we as an industry have told them they haven't saved enough. And so now they feel like, you know, someone feels like horrible and they come in and they're like, well, I know I'm not doing this right. I know I'm not doing that right. And I'm like, well, hold on. Let's take a time out. Let's that's one. Let's focus on what we're doing well. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. Step one: you came into the office, you made an appointment with a financial advisor, and now we're gonna try to make some changes. And and so I, I think like the whole thing with us thinking or the industry telling people, it's it's the industry, it's it's our industry that does a great job of telling people what they haven't done mm-hmm. and. How much money, like this is the number. If you want to be successful, you need to have this much money to, you know, retire. And it's all about the numbers. I'm like, like I've I've said in the past, I, I don't think that the numbers are all that important if you don't right. understand the why. Right. Why are you trying to save? Like, okay, I want to save so I can retire. And I talk about retirement. I've said it times and time again that retirement is this far off mystical place that we hope we get there. Mm-hmm. And we hope that we have enough money when we get there, but what is really enough and what are we going to be doing and what happens when you retire? Am I just going to be sitting on a rocking? So you have all these different emotions that flood you when it comes to that. And so the only thing is what people do most of the time is they they freeze up and they do nothing because Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do. Like, okay, I'm supposed to put money in my 401k. I got all these company benefits, which open enrollment is going on now. And so there's just this overwhelming thing. I got to pick my health insurance. I got to see if I need you know, short-term, long-term disability. I got to figure out if I need some life insurance from work. And is that enough life insurance? Because they always say I need to have a personal policy and they, you know, they being us. (laughs) And so we tell them all this stuff. And so you have all these different things. And and one thing that I wanted to get 
into was like the impact of psychological traumas that you may have uh, that may affect your relationship with money. Yeah. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? The, the impact yeah. of some, yeah, some psychological traumas. So I think that, well, so for one, a good friend of mine who is a financial therapist, his name's Ed Combs. He's great. Mm-hmm. He always explains trauma like this. So if you see a bear in the woods, mm-hmm. obviously this is upsetting. We don't want to see bears in the woods. It's very scary. So it happens one time you're like, okay, maybe I won't go in that part of the woods. Mm-hmm. If you see a bear in the woods every day and it's stopping your ability to get to your food, mm-hmm. that that's bad. And so trauma, the bear can be anything, can, can be anything, you know? So I, I certainly think that there's, I mean, there are horrible traumas that we hear about, you know, people steal someone's identity, their credit gets ruined. They can't ever fix it you know, super traumatic, or they grow up very, very poor, you know, they had trouble keeping food on the table, very, very financial trauma, those given. But I also think that there is some trauma, if you will, for even the rest of us, that, it, that it's not extreme, but it creeps in in almost the same sort of way. It's like when we tell ourselves that we're bad about money, mm-hmm. maybe we've told ourselves that one time, but maybe we've told ourselves that every day, you know, for the past, let's say, 10 years because we got out of college maybe like during a crisis and now we have all these student loans and we're trying to pay back our student loans and we're being told that we need to save and it's very very stressful i finally get to a financial planner's office and i feel like crap because for the past 10 years i've told myself that i'm terrible with money i'm ashamed of how i feel about money i'm ashamed of how much money i've amassed you know because it's never going to feel like enough i mean that's another thing that we have going on in today's world is that Instagram and Facebook and things like this, as wonderful as they are, they're also, you know, just kind of showing us like one picture, usually the nice picture with a cute filter, you know, doing these cool things. Like I often post pictures when I'm on vacation, not when I'm sitting at my desk. And so I think that this keeping up with the Joneses, what we tell ourselves personally, the fact that we beat ourselves up, you know, about money, I think that those things can also be financial trauma. I don't always think it's just the extreme trauma, but certainly both have an effect. So I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to single out, you know, just the extreme versions because mm-hmm. certainly those do, it will absolutely change the way somebody behaves later in their life towards their money. But even small things that we tell us, like mm-hmm. telling yourself you're bad at math. Lots of kids tell themselves they're bad at math. And then when they finally you know, have to balance their checkbook. Not that we really do that anymore, but when they have to look at their bank account, they automatically say, oh, I I can't do that's numbers. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. It it just doesn't, it's a horrible thing to be telling ourselves that. And, you know, I, so I know that that maybe that isn't exactly what you wanted me to. No, no, that's good. That, I mean, I think that's, that's perfect because I think the it's like a bell curve, right? You have some people, you got 10% of the people that are going to have these massive traumas, like big things. You got another 10% that are going to have nothing. And then you have most of the people that have told themselves the things like I'm bad with money. I'm not good with numbers. I'm not good at math. I'm not this, I'm not prepared. And so you tell yourself that. And what I've learned that the more you stinking thinking, right? You'll think yourself into a depression. You'll think yourself into a bad relationship with money. And, right. and you've thought that. So if you're listening, we know, we know just generally in psychology that helplessness mm-hmm. 
is learned. Mm-hmm. And the same thing can be said for efficacy. Mm-hmm. You know, people that have, like I was just at a conference yesterday, it was the Society for Financial Literacy mm-hmm. in uh, DC. And I was presenting with Gary Matola, who runs or is a part of the Finner Foundation. And he was presenting research on people that feel stressed about their money and people that feel anxiety about their money. And although we can't play correlation causation, he was talking about how those that had higher financial self-efficacy, so not even literacy, Mm -hmm. higher financial self-efficacy, they simply believed that they could, Mm -hmm. that they had lower stress and lower anxiety Mm -hmm. as it pertained to their money. So I think that it's important to remember that self-efficacy and hope, you know, this learned helplessness are sort of on opposite sides and people can be anywhere sort of in between on this scale, but that having the belief that you can, the growth mindset, the grit, whatever you want to call it, they've done research on this in like millions of ways. And it all kind of leads to the same thing. You got to believe in yourself. You got to know what you want and you need to figure out what your talents are as it relates to getting this thing that you want. And if you don't do that, then you're just going to develop the helplessness. And that is just going to leave you in a worse place, probably even a more scared place. When you feel helpless, you're scared, you're mad. Mm -hmm. Um, These things are not good as it pertains to putting together a financial plan. Absolutely. That that 100%. I agree with what you're saying. And I've seen it in, in my clients. And it's like, okay, so you know, spending more time with them talking about what's important to them, you know, some of the some of the there's the financial life planner designation where people spend more time, you know, touching on some of the emotional parts of the money and, and mm-hmm. people's past, and, and drawing those things, those things out. And, and it, it's it just, it makes for a much better, well, much more well-rounded approach to finance when you get those emotional things in, because a lot of times as advisors, we don't ask why enough, you know, to the point to where- Just asking those open-ended questions, keeping that dialogue going, because it doesn't, that's the other thing too, I should probably point out, as as you pointed out, you know, therapy conjures up these things Mm -hmm. in our minds, Mm -hmm. you know, couches, (laughs) stress, Mm -hmm depressed, Mm -hmm. I have to to do all these yucky things in order to go see a therapist. I don't think it's necessarily that way. You know, I, you know, just like, it's like the rap song says more money, more problems. Like we oftentimes think of more money as a good thing, but Mm -hmm. more money brings more stress. And so it's like, if I'm going to see a financial therapist, or even if I'm going to see my financial advisor and my financial advisor is good at asking open-ended questions and can help me to understand okay, now that I have all this money, back to this conference that I was at yesterday, as, as part of the presentation that we were giving, one of the women from the NFL foundation was there and she was talking about athletes and their sudden money and how difficult that this is for them and how, you know, there's lots of statistics out there that say like lottery winners, you know, sports stars, these types of people that come into this money kind of quickly. They often also lose it very quickly. And it's because they think, okay, now I'm, now I'm rich. I need to have a plane. I need to like invest in businesses. I need to do this. I need to do that because there's this archetype of what rich people do. And, you know, is that what you should do as a rich person? Is that what you want to do as a rich person? Is that really what's going to make you happy? And it's like, if we could spend more time on that, why? And, you know, maybe they come in and say, I need to buy a house for my mother. Okay. Why? you know, okay, well, she was a good mom and I really like her. Okay. Um, Does it need to be a million dollar house? No, just the house and probably the neighborhood that she currently lives in would be good. Okay. Then maybe that's like 300,000. Okay. You know, and so it's like, 
I'm not saying that we can't do this for you. We absolutely can. Your why is very powerful, but let's, let's make it doable. You know, let's not necessarily, and let's try to understand what the why really is. If the why is to build it, to get this, your mother into a house that she loves and cares about, then it's not putting her necessarily in some $3 million place that's in this new area, whatever, you know, I just think it's, it's important to understand because yeah. No, I, you're, you're like, I love where you're going with this because I, I, I know for a fact that happens. Like I have to give, like, it's like, you think about how you provide for your family, right? You provide for your kids. You make sure they have clothes. You make sure they have, you know, food to eat this and that. Now, if my son or my kids want something to eat, you know, they're probably good with, you know, let's say McDonald's. If they want to, we're going home, we're going to get something quick. I don't need to take my kids to Ruth Chris. Right. Like, I don't, you know, and, and, but that's the same type of attitude that you see when you go get the house. My mom needs a new, you know, someone says, my, I want to buy a new house for my mom. Okay, let's get her a new house. You can find a house for three or $400,000, probably in a neighborhood or close in the neighborhood where she's at now, whether it's your mom or dad, whoever you're buying something for, you don't have to buy that big, huge house. I, I like, so, but I, I think that the we try to overcompensate yeah for the lack of things that we had and operating from that place of scarcity thinking that this money is going to end i have to do everything i can now right now and so i'm going to go out and i'm going to buy this right now because i have money in my pocket and i can do it not necessarily in your pocket but you have money in your possession and you can do things that you normally wouldn't do i wanted to talk about this the childhood memories about money and how it mm -hmm. shapes what you think about money as you're an adult. Can we can we talk on that a little bit? Because I think this I think this is a good place to to jump into that because I think this is where some yeah. of this stuff comes from. So there's a lot that can come up with that because mm -hmm. in some households money isn't discussed at all. Yes. You know, like we don't know how much our parents make. We don't know if our parents have savings. We don't know if when our parents pass if they have money to pay for their own funeral expenses. You know, some people just don't talk about money at all. Mm -hmm. Some people only talk about money when they're fighting. Mm -hmm. You know, like I didn't get this payment or this bill is late or why did this happen? And so then there's a lot of negative, a lot of fear in talking about money. Some people will do different things with money. Like this didn't necessarily happen to me, but it could happen. You know, you give the daughter, you know, this, but you give the son this other thing. Mm -hmm. And so you're teaching mm -hmm. different gendered roles with the money. And sort of all of these things can bring about, I mean, if you want to go as far to say as pathology, which you, you totally can, certainly people have hoarding disorders, people have compulsive buying disorders, yes. people have, you know, gambling disorders. These are all mm -hmm. real things in the DSM. Mm -hmm. They are diagnosable issues there's a pathology mm -hmm. thing. But even for the average person, without it going to that extreme mm -hmm. diagnosable place, the things we experience around money as children certainly influence the people that we become in the future. If you're that kid who like, I grew up when Abercrombie and Fitch was cool. And so like, if you didn't have an Abercrombie and Fitch with your Nikes and your Gap jeans, like you weren't cool. You know, mm -hmm. and so you wanted to have those things. So can you imagine growing up in a house where you couldn't mm -hmm. afford those things? 
and you mm -hmm. still had to, you know, go to school. So then when you finally do come into a little bit of money, what are you going to buy? You know, you're going to buy the name yeah. brand thing. Whereas the other person, you know, maybe in their high school days, they could afford it. No big deal. It wasn't a big thing yeah. to them. They had Gap, they had Abercrombie and Fitch, mm -hmm. and they also had Chanel. I don't know. For them, like, sure, they, they know that they can buy a label, but is buying a label, does that actually mean anything about their character? For them, no. Mm -hmm. You know, so now you've got two people that react very differently to like brand name stuff simply because it meant a lot to them as a child or it didn't really have any effect on them at all. So I think that different things like that, you know, can certainly, uh, can, well, not, I think that I know that, that different experiences that we have as children, even my own experience, like being told, you know, got to take care of yourself. You know, you're a female that absolutely affected who I became mm -hmm. as a female and the way that I run my financial household. You know, I, it's neither here nor there too about it being a bad thing or a good thing. Like we just have to know that it's happening. You know, you may not be able to change. Like if you're a compulsive shopper or we love to say retail therapy, like that's a thing. And so if you're one of those people that's like, you've had a rough day and you're like, I just want to go to the mall and buy a new pair of shoes, or I just need this new handbag. It's going to, you know, bring this instant feeling of goodness. It can be really hard to unlearn that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes knowing that that's your go-to, and when you slow down that thought process, it comes from like cognitive behavioral therapy. When you can get someone to sort of realize the run-up, realize the spin-up, realize the emotions that are happening, realize why that's happening, where that came from, then they may not necessarily be able to change it. They still may really want to go to the mall, and they may even go to the mall. They may do some window shopping now instead of doing actual retail shopping or maybe they'll buy it and return it. I don't know. But I sometimes think that just being aware of what your trigger is, again, I, to this day, I don't share a bank account with my husband. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Do we talk about money all the time? Yeah. Do we have a super happy, good financial life? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Am I going to share that bank account? No. And so I think you need to know what's going on to be able to explain it to others if it's if appropriate obviously mm -hmm. and for the financial advisor you know to know some of that stuff you know to know what the triggers are to know because they're going to see the spending habits they're going to see the credit cards they're going to see the bank they're going to see all this stuff and to be able then to have that kind of conversation like well tell me how this feels you know last last month you spent five hundred dollars at nordstrom you know did something happen and just see what they say you know, be, be comfortable with silence and see what they say. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's one of those, like, like, as you bring that up and I'm thinking about clients and I'm thinking about, you know, spending habits, like, you know, better than, you know, just as well as I do, you look at someone's calendar and look at their bank account, you can tell what is important to them, mm -hmm. where they spend their time, where they spend their money. And so being able to have someone that you keep accountable, that keeps you accountable to those things, I think is, is really good. And asking those questions, those why questions. How did that make you feel? Why did you do it? What happened? You know. Yeah, honoring those emotions. You know, because we we can't just pretend like the emotion isn't happening. Yeah. It is. And to be able to talk, to have to provide, like this is going to be super super yogi sounding, but mm -hmm. I was a yoga instructor at one point. Mm -hmm. To to hold that space mm -hmm. and to say in this office it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, to talk about 
a bad day and how you went a little crazy on the spending. Mm -hmm. In this office, it's okay to say you don't know what a Roth is. Mm -hmm. In this office, it's okay for you to tell me that you're afraid or that you are stressed or that this isn't enough or that you're angry. You know, in this office, it's okay to say those things. I want to know those things. They are going to help me to build a better financial plan for you where we can get to your why, where we can make sure that the money is going to the right things, where we can have a focus. I have to know what those things are. And, and I, I think letting clients know that, that within this office, it is safe to say these things. I expect you to say these things. I want to hear these things from you. You know, because they they sometimes think too. Okay, well, I just got to go there and talk about the fact that I don't have any money mm-hmm. this month. Like that's not a good feeling mm-hmm. to have. And so sometimes if we let them know that some of these other conversations are okay to have as well, then I I think it can help us get further in terms of understanding what they need, what they don't need. It helps them sort it out. Mm-hmm. You know, there isn't. That's one of the benef- biggest benefits of therapy mm-hmm. in its traditional sense is just getting in there and talking about it talking through it, talking back over it again. Those things can be really helpful. And if advisors want to go into that space, which there's the life planning stuff, that's what that's doing. The financial therapy, that's what that's doing. I definitely think that financial advisors can. This is so good. (laughs) This is like so good. Just because I think I've I've talked about these things from the minority standpoint, right? The Minority Money Podcast, obviously we're going to deal with minority issues, talk about minority things. However, as you're laying this out, I've said some of these things, not quite as well as you have, but I've said some of these things. And when I look at it, I'm like, I always make it sound like it's a, it's a, you know, this is a minority issue, but it's not just a minority issue. This is like a money and emotions and like, there's a lot of stuff going in to this. And so like, like I shared with you before, this is the, you know, the, the minority money podcast is where we trying to change the complexion of wealth. And what, what motivates you and and inspires you to grow? Like what, what does that? Cause like what you're doing and and what you're saying is just like, so like you get it, you just get it. So, so what motivates you? I want more people to get it. No, (laughs) (laughs) I I really, I, I don't want people to be afraid of money. And I know that so many people are, and they feel so much shame when it comes to money. And, and that's universal. The things that we're feeling are universal and we don't talk about them enough. I think that that is a real disservice. You know, they, they always do that study and they always think it's so funny where they ask people like what their favorite sex position is and Mm -hmm. how much money is in their bank account. Mm -hmm. And what question do you think people answer? Their favorite sex position. They don't say what's in their bank account. They are willing to talk about what goes on behind closed doors, but you think for one second, they're going to tell you what's in their bank account. They don't. And so I, I really hope that not only that, you know, I hope that financial therapy, you know, continues to be a profession and moves forward as a place for people that need that deeper work. But I also hope because I love financial planners and I think that their work I'm going to steal the words from Michael Kitsis because I, I have never found any, I, when he said it, I was like, that's exactly how I feel. That financial planning is sacred. Your job is as important, if not more important than a medical doctor. You are helping people build their lives and goals and dreams. And that is insanely and spiritually and all these things, level of importance. And so what motivates me is that I hope that I believe that the industry is like headed in this way, 
that we know that clients need this. We see that clients need this. And we have amazing financial planners out there that are wanting to do this work. And that, that inspires me, you know, when, I, when, you know, back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or whatever, at this point, when I started working for my mom and spent all those hours on the phone with financial advisors, half the time talking about rebalancing, but the other half the time talking about their lives, their clients' lives, they love their clients. And I think that that is so inspiring. And there's so much work to still do in this area. And it's only going to improve. It's only going to raise Absolutely. that bar do, do you that think we that all want to see in the financial in industry. I do, but I think that a lot of research has shown, and I feel like anecdotally, this is how it is in my own life, that certainly I think, I mean, the fact that we only have basic financial education in 13 states is <laughs> ludicrous. It should be in every state and you should have to take it like, in sixth grade, in ninth grade, in 12th grade, you should have to take it three or four times. And then as an introductory college course, you should also have to take an, a 16 week course on student loans, period. Everybody should have to do it as a part of a gen ed. I don't care who you are, what background you're coming from, gen ed, you're gonna learn about student loans. So I think that education can play a huge part mm -hmm. in wealth building, but I also know that financial education seems to be most effective when it's kind of like, just in time education. So mm -hmm. I don't care about housing loans until I'm buying my house. I don't mm -hmm. care about a car loan until I'm buying a new car. I don't care about financial planning until I think, oh snap, I might want to retire in 10 years. <laughs> like, you know, we, so it is important, but people don't kind of want it. And I don't know if it's a, just our lives are busy and we don't want to think about that until it's, you know, I don't know how to start the education sooner or mm -hmm. what education to provide sooner but people still do tend to like just-in-time education as it pertains to financial things. And so until we figure out what that interim education looks like, I'm all for just-in-time education. I also think, though, there should be some greater emphasis on educating people earlier and younger about some of the just general financial things. I like it. I love it. Just-in-time education. I like that. That's a... Uh... I'm going to use that. If you could, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, if you could offer a piece of advice or pieces, I always offer the option now for pieces. If you could offer some advice to our listeners today, what would that advice be? I think it's really important that we talk about money and make it not shameful and, or make it not scary. And the only way to do that, like it's, I always use that, that line, you know, be, be the change that you wish to see. So you may be comfortable with your financial self and that's great. And so next time you're out, you know, having some mojitos with your friends, cause it's Friday, bring up your 401k. Say it, just say something about your, Hey, it's open enrollment. Did you guys do it? I did it. I increased my blah, blah, blah. People may think at the time, like, don't, freaking talk about that right now. Like we're trying to enjoy our mojitos. You're bringing us all down. But I bet you six months later, three months later, one of your friends is going to call you and they're going to say, Hey, you know, I, I remember the other night we were out talking and you were talking about 401ks. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily know a lot about that, but, mm -hmm. but I do finally have access to one at work. You know, can we talk about it? And so if you're comfortable with money, start talking about money. 
financial advisors also. You know, you can be a safe place. You can be a resource to just continually talk about money. Tell people that you are a financial advisor. When you're sitting with them on the plane, talk to them about what you do. I think that if we just raise the general discussion, you know, of money to the way that we talk about other things in our lives, mm-hmm. that 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 that's really important, that it can't always be hush-hush. It shouldn't always be in arguments. You know, we need to have healthier, more common, just everyday language about about money. I feel like a lot of times in my undergraduate course that I teach through the University of Maryland University College, it's like an introduction to finance type course and are the fundamentals of wealth, like a really basic finance course. One of the things that we talk about is how just the vocabulary of money different. You walked into a 700 level biology class and they were talking about nuclei and you've mm-hmm. never heard of a nuclei before. Mm-hmm. Certainly it's going to be like, I don't know anything that's going on in this class. So, you know, if we've never heard the words 401k, if we've never heard the words IRA or independent retirement account, you know, if we've never heard Roth, if we've never heard bond, you know, if we've never heard some of these things, and certainly it makes having financial discussions more difficult because these are new vocabulary words that we don't know. Um, so I, I, again, I just think it's about talking about money more, being a safe place to talk about money. And it's not about, you know, well, this is how much I have. It's just opening the door. Let's just open the door to talk about finances in a, a healthier way. And I, I think if we continue to do that in our small groups, in our church groups, in our community groups, just openly talking about money will slowly change that. Yes. I, I have nothing to add. Like that was just really good. It was a powerful answer. Just talk about money. Just, just, just open up the doors to talk about it. If listeners want to get more of Meg, they want to see, follow you on social. Where, where can, where can our listeners find more of Meg? At? I, I have been told I have a Twitter. <laughs> I don't know how it works. I'm on LinkedIn. They can certainly find me on okay. LinkedIn. Uh, I do work for Michael Kitsis, and so I do publish a monthly blog, usually on financial psychology things. You can always email me there. I'm I'm usually easily, most easily tracked down by email. Okay. Certainly, I can be reached through the Financial Therapy Association. I can be reached through the Kitsis website. I can be reached through Kansas State University. But yeah, I'm not I'm not much of a social media person. Sorry. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We will put links to the financial planning, our financial therapy association in, in the show notes. That'll be in the blog. We actually have a minority money podcast blog that has started here recently. So a lot of the stuff we talk about, if we ever talk about any books or any links like that, we'll have all of that stuff included in the blog. So if you want to hear more about financial therapy, Meg can be reached at the financial therapy association.com org, org. 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 And thank you again for what you're doing. I've learned so much just sitting here listening to you talk about therapy. And I thank you. I just I thank you for coming on. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for inviting me. Really enjoyed talking about it. And I hope I hope that it helps. Yes, I, it is going to help. It is definitely going to help. I think people are going to we're going to make sure that people are talking about money next time I'm out having a mojito or a glass of scotch, whichever it is. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, de- I'm just going to ask people, Hey, did you, what'd you do? You know, did you enroll for your 401? Did you roll, do your open enrollment? Did you get into your 401k? Did you 
you know, how much money you save. Yeah. So I, I'll definitely do that. Um, and, and hopefully the listeners will challenge themselves and people that are around them to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Until next time, thank you for listening. Have a great day. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening to on now. And give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and to be supported by others just like you. And again, we're super happy to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it cannot be completely your one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But guess what? If you have any questions, or maybe you just like to chat, please reach out to me directly at imlin at minoritymoney.com so that we can get to know each other there. Thanks for being here, and we're signing off.